d.slate underscore one subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you get your content from come check out your boy all right ladies and gentlemen welcome to the darian fitter podcast i believe this is episode nine and today i have a very special guest my good friend Wait, do you want me to use your government name or do you want a nickname? Mm-hmm. How do you want to identify yourself? That's a good question. I think I'm going to go with a standard MJ. MJ. Maybe One of my good friends, MJ, not Jordan or Jackson, but MJ. So, welcome to the podcast. The second woman that we have on the podcast It's a very, very pleasure and an honor for you to be on this episode with me. How are you doing today, MJ? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm excited. I'm a big fan. I want y'all to know I'm a big Appreciate fan. that. You know, You're moving on slowly, but you know what? <laughs> hey, it's, uh, it's getting there. It's, it's getting there to an extent. So we got a few different topics that we want to, you know, talk about today. And one of the most prominent aspects is, you know, me and MJ have this conversation from time to time. <laughs> she went to a HBCU. Two. I went to two. My bad. Two she HBCU. went to two HBCUs. Two. And um, I went to two PWIs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we always have this conversation. Well, not really we. I would say that MJ <laughs> brings up this conversation in terms of, you know, the experience that I might have lacked not going to an HBCU. Nice. So... I just want to get her perspective upon that aspect. And then also, we're going to talk about, you know, the situation involving Meg Thee Stallion and, um, you know, Tory Lanez, you know, shooting her in the foot. So, also, we would be remiss to start this podcast if we didn't, you know, acknowledge that today is Kobe Bryant's birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Kobe Bryant, RIP, Black Mamba. See, you got the 1996 shirt on. Yes, I got the Shirt on. Oh wow, that's a, that's a dope shirt paying homage oh, when he got drafted yeah. out of Lower Marion High School. Still doesn't feel real. It doesn't at all. Kobe Bryant was the, he was holding the world together because after he passed, it just, it just crumbled. Everything just went sour. It it's like Final Destination on steroids. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's like the closest thing to an apocalypse. Well, it's not that bad. Yeah, but you know, I would not be surprised if that happened. The four they horsemen. They have two hurricanes. Towards the Gulf, like southern states. I think it's like towards Louisiana, Texas, Florida. Oh, I thought you. Were, oh, I, I ain't in Texas no more. I mean, I, <laughs> pray for them. I said that to say it does seem kind of apocalyptic. Yeah, and in the West Coast, you still got the the, you know, the forest fires mm-hmm. and everything going on. So you know, we're gonna go ahead and um, get started up on our first topic. So, MJ, can you uh, let the people know? You know where you went to uh, undergrad and why you went to undergrad and, you know, how that has shaped your experience and some, like, identity development to an extent and, like, how prom- prominent, you know, attending HBCU was for you. Okay. Um, for those who can identify my voice, y'all know, y'all already know. I went to the illustrious Louis State University for undergrad and I went to the Great Morgan State for grad school. Okay. Um, <laughs> my mom didn't want me to go to an HBCU. Why not? I think it was surroundings. My mom, she does a lot of domestic work. Okay. Um, and 
that means that she's around a lot of white families. And so, <laughs> you know, that influence, uh, a couple of our family friends, you know, they work in academia, higher education, mm -hmm. and they were like, go to this school, it's better. Go to, go to this, Bowie State is not where you need to be. You're bright, you're intelligent, you have good grades. Your SAT scores were okay. <laughs> so, so, so I guess we're like, so, your family and friends, where they're making the assumption that you wouldn't get the same quality of education at HBCU so. opposed to PWI. Very much so. And, and I'll, I'll note, like, I went, I grew up in a predominantly white county, so mm -hmm. I went to school with a very diverse population. So a lot of what, you know, I did was kind of sort of whitewashed, like, the more I think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wanted to change. I'll be honest with you. I don't even know why I wanted that HBC experience. I think I might have seen like a commercial on BET one day. You saw a commercial on BET. Like, yep. Mm -hmm. And I made your decision. And it was the best decision I've ever made. I wouldn't change anything about it. Okay. And you know that. So. Well, clearly. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because one of my other friends, she went to, um, I think she went to Jackson State. Mm -hmm. And every time somebody from an HBCU, you know, presents themselves, it's almost like they're giving like a speech. I went to the illustrious, I the mean, magnificent, the profound, which is, I think is phenomenal. I think it's awesome. I think it is awesome, but I'm just asking for your name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think that, you know, obviously that had a profound impact on you, but how do you think, you know, it had to be something deeper than you just seeing it. BET commercial oh, yeah. to make that decision. Well, you got to understand, I'm first gen, right? Okay. So my mom was helping me navigate Fair point. the college experience the best she knew how, utilizing like the resources we had, such as like our family friends, which are telling her, like, go to UMBC, go to Towson, Frostburg, all of the University of Maryland. And I didn't want any of that. I think subconsciously, I was tired of being around all these white folks. I was tired of like, I was operating in a lot of imposter syndrome. Mm, and see. I was tired of it. And I didn't realize that going to an HBCU would have that impact, but it's the best thing that I've ever done. Especially if you've done, okay. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, so, what did you learn about yourself? You know, or, or what was it about the um, HBCU environment that was conducive mm. to your, you know, development as a woman? Oh, um, I'll start with identity development just because I think this is a prominent, it was the first thing I noticed about myself my freshman year. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One, Bowie State. <laughs> I, I, I sound like I was during. Sound like what now? I said I sounded I was during a cut a commercial for Bowie State. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because people tell me and my friends that I went to undergrad with, like every time y'all talk about Bowie, it sounds like y'all in a cult. Like, what did that school do to you to make you love it so much? But it's just the environment. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I um. When I started freshman year, again, I was first gen. I didn't know how to navigate a lot. Um, and my name is, you know my name. MJ. <laughs> you know the first part of my name and how white it is. So think about this. My name is what it is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to this black school. I come from a predominantly white county, mm -hmm. which is kind of, which is close to the county in which Bowie State is in, a predominantly black county. And I'm surrounded by all of these people. I had people telling me that, like, I sound white. I had people telling me, like, I don't even know how to pronounce your name. How do I, like, and they had to put their own little spin on it. Mm -hmm. um, but it hit me that, like, oh, this isn't what I'm used to. There aren't 
chipper people everywhere. People are actually themselves. People are in the sitting in their authentic self. Mm -hmm. And we all had a lot of, we grew up similarly. So they, not everybody was driving around in BMWs and Benzes. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> people struggled to pay tuition. It was just a real environment and it was something that I needed because it made me feel like I wasn't alone having grown up, you know, in a lower SES socioeconomic status, so. Mm -hmm. I see, and uh, for me personally, you know, the first school I applied to, or the first school I got accepted into was uh, Xavier University in Louisiana, but my mom wasn't trying to let me go down there. You know, even though it was like years after Hurricane Katrina, she was just like, oh, no, you can't go there. So me personally, I, I'm a fan of HBCUs. If I had the opportunity <laughs> to go to one, I definitely would have pursued that avenue. But, you know, my mom was tripping and um, she wasn't having that. But also, I think that I definitely do feel that sense of pride that individuals who went to HBCU have. Not saying I'm not, I'm not prideful in my undergrad or my grad school um, experiences, but the way you all talk about them, I never probably talk about the school in that same light. Not because I didn't enjoy the experience, it was just like, well, you know, I built some great relationships there and everything, but like this almost sounds like Bowie State was like a, like a, a nurturing mother figure, you know, for a lot of, you know, people who experienced it. Well, I have one of my um, old coworkers, she started, she began her grad school journey at a predominantly white institution. And I was finishing up in Morgan. I was in my second year of my grad program at Morgan. And I had that conversation with her. I was like, why don't you try it? It's right up the street. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt to apply. We have the grades, like just make the switch. And she was like, you know what? I think I might. Mind you, I had taken her to like a game and I had taken her to campus and like she see the environment. And when she officially pursued, began to pursue her master's at Morgan, the first thing she told me was, I have never been in an environment where I one feel comfortable. Mm. And two, you know, I have people around me that look like me and they're teaching me and it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you said, it's, it is a nurturing environment. It's very familiar. I think sometimes you got people who look like you and you have staff, administration, mm -hmm. and you have like faculty who wants you to be successful. I think that's very uh, positive. It's that representation, you know, quite often if you go to a PWI or you're in an environment, you don't see, you know, staff and faculty who look like you, you know, and um, I think just that level of comfort and familiarity, you you feel like you probably have somebody who's gonna be in your best interest in terms of they wanting you to be successful or they're motivating you to go to class. Also, they may be holding um, you accountable. They have a vested interest in your success, which I feel like a lot of individuals who went to HBCU, they often articulate, at least in my um, experience in like conversations um, with them. So I guess to, to, you know, move on, what would you say, or, or how about this? <laughs> Why? And also this is my experience, Got but it. this is the question that I have. I feel that sometimes there's that debate between, you know, black folks, which is completely unnecessary in my opinion, okay. in terms of a PWI versus an HBCU. Okay. You know, there are both forms of, you know, higher education. And I think that, you know, we all should be, you know, we all should be pretty um, excited about that excellence. Mm -hmm. And obviously 
the black experience isn't monolithic. However, I do quite often see a lot of debates in terms of uh, you went to this HBCU, you went to this PWI, um, you went to this HBCU, so you don't have a real understanding of what the real world may represent, or you went to this PWI, you don't understand what it means to be black or have that authentic black experience. I hear that conversation and that debate come up quite often. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is? And have you partaked in some of those conversations <laughs> and uh, debates? You know, I'll be quite honest, starting with your latter question. I think that I, I sat back and I thought about that. I don't, I joke around a lot, you know that. I joke around a lot, but at the end of the day, if I think back, like if my child, you know, I wouldn't want to limit my child to go to HBCU just because I have a preference. Mm -hmm. They're going to go where they want to go. I had that same choice. So like, I think it is kind of stupid to have that debate, but there is a difference in the experience. <laughs> and I say that being a black person who has a decently predominantly white K through 12 experience, going to a black, an all black space and now working in an all white space or majority white space, I can see it. I can there's, <laughs> there's a big difference. Um, and, you know, I think for those of us, my, my colleagues and my peers that went to HBCUs, I think that we're so used to being stigmatized. Mm -hmm. For example, and I think Hampton still has a curfew, but we couldn't have visitation freshman year until homecoming. Wow. We couldn't, there's, cer there's certain limitations to what we can do. And yeah, it's a part of the culture, meaning like they want us to succeed, to succeed, but there's, there's like this, I consider it, and this is just my own opinion. I think that institutionally HBCUs are being viewed with a negative lens out the gate. It's just kind of like being black in America you kind of have something against you because of your skin color. And I think that's how a lot of our institutions um, think and feel. And I think that's how their policies and procedures are, were cultivated. Um, and I think that those of my colleagues and peers that went to PWIs, I think sometimes, I've had conversations with people, I think sometimes they feel like they missed out on something. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, look at the racial climate in America today or these past couple of years they might have wanted or needed that space to kind of mature and grow, you know? So it's a stupid battle. It's a stupid debate, mm -hmm. but there's, there's definitely underlying reasons as to why it happens. Why do you think the outside perception? Because we're black. <laughs> HBCUs? Mm -hmm. It's a black school. Mm -hmm. We, we already don't, for example, Maryland HBCUs versus like the University of, uh, of um, the University System of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Underfunded. <laughs> Underfunded. They it just there's a big it 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 it's it caused major disparities within some of the institutions these HBCUs in Maryland and like that in itself is an example of how different it is. Why would the University System of Maryland need to create an entirely different institution instead of putting the pro funding a program at, at, at a specific at an HBCU like there was no need for that you could have put that money into that institution and helped it grow instead systemic. of mm -hmm. creating a predominantly white school you get what I'm trying to say it, it's systemic like you said and so it's just institutionalized racism <laughs> systematic racism I see it, 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 it. so do you 
also uh-huh. sometimes I feel okay. and this may be um, associated with that you know almost like a, a middle child syndrome that sometimes HBCUs may have which is what okay. I'm if, I, if, I, if I'm interpreting that okay. correctly okay. like almost like oh we're less than uh-huh. we're underfunded you know we get overlooked even like within you know HBCU culture in itself mm-hmm. you know um, Jeff Bezos his ex-wife you know the norm yep. uh, donated like a, a, a nice per- uh, portion of her funds to, which to Howard you yeah. know so which is there's a multitude of different HBCUs out there however sometimes I also feel that you know and it may be because of that mindset that oftentimes I feel like some individuals who I've had conversations with from HBCUs they often feel the need to defend you know their HBCUs I'll give you an example I went home um, and mind you like I have I kept in touch with a good amount of my friends from high school I even partied at some some high school crazy but um, I went home after my first like maybe semester of freshman year and I was talking to some of my friends from high school and they were talking to me and they were like Marianne your voice got deep right <laughs> y'all couldn't see his face but it was like it's it's it confused me and I was like what do you mean and they were like yeah usually you're not as like happy and peppy and like mm-hmm. and it made I really had to sit with that after I left them and I I mean anybody that knows me knows that I'm already like very high energy I have a bright personality but like I must have been forcing it to mm, fit in. I see. And it hit me that, oh, I'm comfortable. Like, I'm finally Were in you the place. in the sunken place is what you're saying? I think I was. <laughs> I think I was. I won't even lie. Like, think about it. Like, in, in high school, I was, like, I danced. I was on palms. Mm-hmm. I did, like, the typical, you know, I don't want to group anybody but typical like white high school experience of football games dance on the field you know cheerleading like I had my pom-poms or my uniform school like had the full like experience had friends had black friends Mm -hmm. my boyfriend was black in high school like I had those experiences but like it I still it still those did it feel performative or it it wasn't authentic I didn't realize Mm -hmm. it was performative until I was placed in an environment an environment where I could be myself and a lot of time, you know, if you're in that environment, you know, throughout high school, you know, what you see is what you're used to. Mm-hmm. And um, especially peer pressure. And at that point in your life, you know, whatever Sally May may be doing, you know, is what MJ is going to be doing. So I can understand how that can breathe. So when was it that you had that almost like that light bulb moment? Like, wait a second, I'm in a space where I can truly figure out who I am and the person that I want to become you know was it you know a month or two after your first or freshman year your sophomore year when did you figure out or what was it like a specific instance that you had that moment and you recognized that wait a second i don't have to be this person who i'm not anymore convocation freshman year okay um for those who don't know what convocation is it's every hbcu has it it's where you all the first year students at least first year students gather they're in an auditorium the president welcomes them the um the SGA president welcomes the students and like the royal HBCUs have a big royal culture. So the Mr. and Miss of the school um, welcomes you. But the moment that I realized that I was like, this is where I needed to be was <laughs> when they had us all stand and they sung, lift every voice and sing. Mm. I won't lie to you. I was in tears. I was like, dang, 
I've heard this song before, but to be in a space where, and we prayed, they prayed before they started convocation. And that was a big thing too. Not saying that everybody has to be spiritual, but to see it so uniform, it was just something that I grew up mm -hmm. with translated over into this environment, which is now my home because I'm living on campus, I'm eating on campus, my friends are on campus, all my activities, my classes, everything is in this little bubble. And it just helped me sit in the fact, like, in the fact that, like, this is... It's powerful. It was very powerful. This is, this is where I need to be. I made a great choice. Let's see. Okay. I think, you know, that's phenomenal. Matthew, you had that experience. <laughs> you know, as someone who went to a PWI, I don't often wonder, but I do sometimes think about like, hmm, how would I have, I, I don't personally think I would have been any different yeah. um, if I went to a HBCU opposed to a PWI, but also sometimes wonder like, okay, what would that experience, you know, have, uh, you know, been? But, you know, because the majority of my um, early education, I went to an all black, you know, uh, private school from like the second to eighth grade, you know, Harambe Community School. So all my homies from Milwaukee know the type of environment that we were in. But it was a very authentically black environment. We set a pledge every morning. And looking back at it now as an adult, I recognize that it provided a sense of pride in being black, a sense of understanding and a sense of community that we all recognize that we needed. So for me personally, I think at an early age and you know, I had parents family members who were very intentional with providing that experience letting you know that hey you're black this is what it means to be black these are certain experiences that you may um encounter the older you get so early on i feel like that was already a so mm -hmm. and prominent part of me it wasn't until i got to high school i remember so i went to rufus king high school and you had to take a test to get into the school like that was my first time with being in the same classroom with a white person who wasn't a teacher. And I remember for me that being so weird. Like, wait a second. I'm used to like, even at this all black school, we, we still have some white teachers, but you know, they were in a, a very authoritarian role. But like, to take that test and the, the person who's next to me is a white person at that age, I was like 13, 14, it was almost like a culture shock. And then once you got to high school, it was extremely diverse. And then you have all those different, you know, experiences so i think that for me personally at that age at that stage i was like okay you know i got that and i recognize that you know i got that early on so i had it i wonder and this is just speculation do you feel like sometimes people may go to hbcus because they may be searching for that or they may be looking for just an environment that's going to be conducive to them being successful i think there's it's multifaceted meaning you have people that go to the HBCUs because their legacy. Their parents went, you know, they want to follow in the same footsteps. You have people that went that go to HBCUs because they provide an opportunity. Grades might have been low, SAT scores might have been low, and they offered that chance. And there it was it was there's such an, a supportive environment that you then they then succeed and like go on and graduate. You have like I, like my story, you know, searching I was subconsciously searching mm -hmm. but searching for you know a place where they can be themselves be their true authentic selves um so there's many different reasons sometimes people just love greek culture right mm -hmm. greek culture is big Ooh, 
it's big on an HBCU campus. If anything, sometimes it runs the campus. Um, meaning heard that from like upper level administration I've heard to. That. I've heard that. I had a conversation times. with one of my friends um, about two days ago, and you know, I I I, I pledged undergrad. Um, he pledged grad, and we were talking about. But he also was a campus king, and so we were talking about how. Um, he he now works in he works in counseling therapy, mm -hmm. um, but we're talking about higher education and the that how it impacts nepotism is big at HBCUs. Mm -hmm. I hate to okay. say it, but okay. but like if it's it's if you know somebody if you're related to someone if you know so who you know someone it, I mean and that's life. But, yeah, but to have a president who's a bra or a Q. Um, and to have like a VP of student affairs who's a Sigma mm -hmm. and to have, you know, I don't know, student activities member who's a Delta. There are certain things that people can kind of get, I don't want to say get away with, but there's, it's still, it's such a supportive environment. Mm -hmm. It's different. The way you view student activities is a little different when you're Greek. I see. If that makes any sense. It, it's just the interactions. So. You know, if you're a Sigma and you need some help and you're going to walk into, you know, VP such and such's office and he's a Sigma, of course he's going to help you. He's going to try and get, oh, us, yeah. you know, get yeah. you out the way, see what he can do to support you. And so, yeah, Greek life is, ooh, is huge. You step on campus and you look around, you can tell. Mm -hmm. It is. You're right now. Yeah. Who, runs, who runs the yard? I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to, oh. <laughs> Your organization is non-hazing, correct? Yes, Dustin Safe Sorority Incorporated is a non-hazing organization. Just to make sure so, that we get that out the way, we need any lawsuits for people to have any repressed oh, trauma. I, you know, no, no, no hazing. Yeah. I, I work in higher education, so <laughs> I get it. Hazing is a bad thing. We don't do hazing. You know, I almost made a comment, but you know what? It's been recorded, <laughs> so I'm just going to keep that to myself. <laughs> Organizations say they are non-hazing, but yeah. you know, you yeah. know. Administration does a phenomenal job. They are not a part of it in any sort of oh, way. Oh, they're just so, no. Mm -mm, they'll put their foot down for that. Always. 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 Okay. So, that's a very interesting um, aspect in terms of, you know, HBCUs opposed to, like, PWIs. I do think, and this is just my personal experience, because I went to grad school at Texas A&M, and I remember we're doing different, you know, um, case studies. No, we're just like so. So A&M is like an hour, hour and a half, hour, hour and a half from Fairview, maybe 45, 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, we went down there for a class just to kind of get a feel for you know how they run their operation mm -hmm. and you know their student pride and the level of like I said that level of pride. You know, been at the institution was you felt it, and I was like, "Wow, this would have been a really good experience." This really may sound pretty well, and also their academic program—they're really good with like you know engineering students and providing internships. So they did a very great job for helping their um, their students land jobs. Mm -hmm. And I never once got that feeling that you know, are you, you at this institution? You're not just a number. And you have like the uh, attention and the support that you need. But one thing about Prairie View that I found out, they had uh, Catfish Fridays. Oh. Oh my God. Yes. 
That's a that's a thing. <laughs> that was phenomenal. That catfish I had. Oh my lord! I talk about hot and juicy. Had me chewing, like oh. old man for no reason. But it's not just Prairie View. Well, we have Soul Food Wednesdays see, and Fried Fish Fridays. All you know, you used to, you had to be there. Like all the athletes, football players, <laughs> basketball players, you had to get there at a certain things, time because yeah. you get there, that that food will be gone in the back. And you know, it's a, it's a black like it's a black school, so mm-hmm. food is it's it's good. And I say it's good for those listening who go, who have gone to HBCUs and only HBCUs and only eaten at HBCU. Trust <laughs> me, y'all haven't had food until you've been to a, I don't want to say a PWI, but just an, a, a different institution. You think it's bad? <laughs> Thompson's, <laughs> Sodexo, <laughs> on an HBCU campus is a lot better than what these kids are here paying all this money eating, y'all. <laughs> that mac and cheese, me. Oh, I, I once went to a conference with my old coworker. Um, the one that ended up going uh, to Morgan, mm-hmm. and the <laughs> the conference was at Delaware State University, HBCU, and so it's different because it was about diversity. Um, so I think it was pretty apropos that they had it on an HBCU campus. But we're sitting in this room filled with predominantly it was predominantly white, um, except for like those facilitating because they worked at the university. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because they started off. <laughs> the conference with the band coming in and it made me happy I used to love sitting outside mm-hmm. I used to make my friends sit outside with me to watch the band practice and march down to the field but they they started with the band and my co-worker was like <laughs> the first, they got the full band <laughs> I hear drums everything like snare drums just everything and then lunch lunch they did typical fried chicken mac and cheese mm-hmm. collard greens um, and we were eating and she was like this is Good food, MJ. I ain't never had cafeteria <laughs> food that tastes like this. I said, and this is what you'll get when you go to work. Like, wow, it's a difference. That's a great selling point. That's a great selling point. It's another thing too with the uh, the bands. Oh, uh, wow. You don't oftentimes you don't go to the athletic games. Yeah, you go you go for halftime and see the bands perform. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I uh, definitely know. But you know. Do you have any other comments that you want to state in terms of a PWI versus an HBCU? Um, I guess I'll just say that, like, having only ever worked, and don't judge me off, <laughs> having only ever worked at predominantly white institutions, I do see a need for black faculty and staff. Um, and, like, black faculty and staff that have gone to HBCUs filling up space in these white environments on a faculty and staff level just because these students want love and not saying that, you know, our colleagues that went to PWIs don't know how to give it Mm -hmm. because they do, they know how to give the love and support. But there is just, when you spend four years, and in my case, six years being honestly kind of like just infilled with support, motivation, affirmation, you know, and just that, that those, base, I don't think base level, those things that you need to help you mature. Like foundational essentials. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how to then translate that to your students and they value it and, and you can see that they value it and they lean on you and you create lasting relationships. So. Just to have a, to play devil's advocate. Okay. What would you say, or how would you, what would your response be to 
those students who want those experiences, mm -hmm. well, why don't you attend an HBCU opposed to a PWI and do your research beforehand? Mm, I won't lie. I used to lean a lot on institutional fit. Like, mm -hmm. you chose to go here. But the more you think about it, and mind you, I, I was looking at that through a smaller lens just because I am first gen. I'm, I'm now navigating, mm -hmm. you know, the process of higher education and, you know, while I was fortunate enough to go to an institution that was very cost effective, cost, cost effective, cost affordable, <laughs> um, some of our students don't have that luxury. And so these PWIs are offering money that these HBCUs are not. They are a minority. So of course they're going to get these scholarships. They're, they're going to qualify for things that they won't qualify for at a predominantly white, I mean, a, an HBCU. So, you know, you know, it comes I back can't. down to economics. Yeah. And honestly, preference. Sometimes there are programs at these PWIs or specific faculty that they want to study with and, you know, do research with that HBCUs don't have. So that's fair. Oftentimes you don't know what you don't know. True. This is great. So I appreciate that conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, let's leave it at this. You know, if you decide to attend an HBCU or a PWI, the fact that you, you know, if college is something that you aspire to do or you went to or you experienced mm -hmm. I think that the dialogue around which one is better that like we need to find a way to uh, mute that conversation because it's quite honestly more divisive and it's pretty um, unproductive so let's just support and acknowledge one another no matter what institution type that we choose to attend all right to transition Oh, to transition before we get okay. talking specifically about the, the Megan Thee Stallion situation. What do you think about the, the song WAP <laughs> and the way that so many people seem to uh, write all these theme pieces and uh, they seem to be uh, offended by the video? Um, and uh, what, what are your thoughts as a woman on that aspect? As a woman, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen so much backlash for somebody doing something, minding their own business, mm -hmm. creating something that they wanted to create because they are a creative. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I'm a, I, I operate under the proponent of if it bothers you, if it irritates you, but it's not affecting your day-to-day -day life, leave it alone. Like, let, let people live their life. Um, I personally, it has a nice beat, you know. <laughs> it's a nice song. Both of uh, Cardi and Megan are talented artists, so. No, I thought, you know, I, I mean, I thought it was a good song too. The video was cool. I don't, the thing that surprised me the most was I feel, I feel like, in all honesty, that isn't even um, one of their, like, they've made songs that could be a lot more quote unquote offensive. Very much so. In all honesty, so that was, and, and that aspect was extremely surprising. Yeah. Um, they're rapping about sex, sex sells, it's a business model. It's also not the first time someone's rapped about sex. It's not the first time that they've rapped about sex. <laughs> I mean, to be quite honest, think about all the songs back in the day in like the 90s, like Next, Too Close, they was, <laughs> they was rapping about What's that one song I silk? It's like, like, let me look you up and down until yeah, you yeah. say stop. Yeah. What? Come on, and that thing, that, that surprised me the most. I mean, and it's just kind of like the, Hypocrisy, so many dudes out here like spazzing out, yeah. which also confuses me because I remember being in third or fourth grade listening to 50 Cent, listening to Get Rich or Die Trying. Yeah. You know how I many songs I rap I heard in terms of murder, I'm PIMP. Yeah. Um, and 
different holes and different area codes, mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, which probably contributed to some of my uh, toxic traits that I had at some point in my life. But you know, <laughs> I've grown past that. I just think that, uh, I guess, I was maybe a little naive to, to recognize and realize like how misogynistic some men really are. Anytime they see a woman in a, a, a role of control who can make a decision for themselves and uh, independent, it's, it, it bothers them. It, for them, it's almost like the natural order uh, of hierarchy has been disrupted or disturbed and I don't they just can't deal with a powerful woman, especially a powerful black woman who's expressing her sex, their sexual desires, which is human nature. Yeah. I just, it's, it's very, uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. I hate to say it, mm -hmm. Lord, oh, don't come for me. But I hate to say it, but it seems like black women can't really win. Because thinking about what happened to Meg, the amount of just she snitched like I like I've we're seen. We're gonna we'll touch on it. We're gonna like, touch on yes. It's it's wild to me that people just can't live their like let people live their life. Black women, definitely. Women life. Yeah, we, I mean, <laughs> this is the thing that trips me out. It's it none, nothing makes sense. It's like that's the, that's what you're upset with, and that's what you're tripping on. It just. It's artistic repre uh, expression, and um, I've always been in the mindset like, you know, if it don't apply, let it fly. Like, why are you so <laughs> offended by this? And so many people just went out of their way to, just to bash these women. Yeah. But you know, I don't know. It, listen, to, um, I guess folks have never listened to Katrina. Obviously, <laughs> I'm like this. this no, <laughs> it's not that they did it. It's not that they did it. You gonna tell me Trina Lil Kim? Just, like, come on! It's like this is what y'all stash out on. I, I think it's the level of exposure, and they're just like up right. I don't know. I think people just also want to be mad for no reason. People don't have anything. It, it costs you nothing to be supportive, and I think people fuel off of negativity okay. and hate. But that video and like. The songs. I just thought. I thought Meg's flow was pretty dope. You know. Oh my god, she came out the gate. Which is like, you know. Spitting. So I'm like, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a quality song, and mm. I don't really understand why people are so um, upset and offended, you know, by that content and by that material. But two black women, two black queens who were doing their thing. You know, they made a dope song, an even doper, um, you know, visual and mm -hmm. video. You know, I don't watch videos of that stature. Oh that often because you know i'm a wholesome young man but at the end of the day i thought it was too it was great content mm -hmm. and um the backlash that they received was extremely unwarranted very much so and um it wasn't even <laughs> their most like sexually explicit song yeah it wasn't but i mean and you know i think it's appreciated to one here black man say say that um and two yeah, everything you said is valid. It's, it was completely unwarranted. A lot <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> a lot of backlash. How do you feel about them having Kylie Jenner in the video? I personally didn't understand it, but I get it from like a like a marketing and I don't know. I honestly I don't really I saw it and I got confused. <laughs> but other
other than that, like, I, I, I don't know. I just guess that they put her in there because she has a good following. Um, she has a, a, a styling following. A, yeah, and so, you know, but do she, what she got to do. I know Cardi B was saying that um, Offset and Travis Scott are, like, really good friends. Mm-hmm. And um, that Kris Jenner, Kylie's mom, has uh, gave them uh, business advice. I mean, I don't, honestly, it makes perfect sense to have her in that video because it can help grow that audience mm-hmm. for Meg and uh, Cardi B because, you know, those visuals, you know, it helps sell music. But um, to transition the point of Meg Stallion and Tory Lanez, it's kind of a, it's like almost unfathomable. It's almost unbelievable, especially the way quarantine started. Quarantine radio. Have you ever seen somebody take so much? Quarantine, quarantine. <laughs> take such a nosedive. Yeah, it's and their career sweet. to be ruined in a three to four month span. Yeah, but, I don't know. It, I'll be honest. When I first watched her, her live when she um, had finally admitted that it was Tori that shot her, mm-hmm. the first thing that I like really sat and thought about was just like, dang. I probably would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. You just, as a black woman, it's just, there's this innate sense of loyalty and protection that you want to have over black men, no matter who they are. Um, and I think sometimes that can skew your, it can kind of skew your, like how you operate just mm-hmm. because, like I said, I probably would have done the same thing, but in like in hindsight, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Like, yeah, if in that moment, but I probably would crush charges at some point. Like, let, let's get through this situation. <laughs> let's, ain't nothing in the car, ain't nothing happened. But like at some point, like she's doing now, like. You know, one the aspect that blows my mind and is truly heartbreaking with that situation is the fact that even after he shot her, she still had that instinct. Her natural instinct was still to go back and protect him. Yeah. Even it's, still it's after, <laughs> and uh, and she was trying to do him a favor because she understands how yeah. things could escalate. You're in an environment, you're in a neighborhood that one, you aren't used to or you aren't familiar with, and also you have a weapon in the car, yeah. and you are obviously living in a day and age that yeah. we're living in. You see how police interact with with black people, especially black men in general, and you know, the first like, thing she thought of was the first thing that she thought of, and and what he did is sick. <laughs> and and, and mm. even after that, to be to be honest, the fact that she stayed as, as uh, she stayed silent, you know, as as long as she as she as she did with that situation, it's also you know remarkable. I mean, I don't. Like, I'm not sure what's going on on the back end, but it's also just one of those situations where it's extremely heartbreaking and disappointing because she got so much flat. The first thing they said was like, "Oh, you lying? It didn't happen like that." Or it was to the point of like, "Well, let's wait and see. I need to hear the entire mm-hmm. story before you know um, I make a decision." Yeah. He's like, "What really happened?" You almost sound like those all lives matters people when it comes to. Um, understanding, you know, what a woman is, t- she's telling you that this dude shot her or she was shot, and the first thing you said, like, I don't believe you. Yeah. You devalue her opinion. You devalue her experience. How do you devalue her specific experience and try to rationalize and justify what happened when you weren't even there? 
I wonder what the root cause of that is, right? Is it like post-traumatic slave disorder-like syndrome? It does it stem back the, from the Willie Lynch letter? Like, what is it that has caused such a divide or such a distrust of Black women? When, like you, like was shown. Like, I, I wish I could express because you just have this innate desire, like want, it, almost a need to protect mm -hmm. you, to, to protect y'all. That it just it doesn't make any sense to be that to have that sense of loyalty and then get the flack that she got for whatever reason. I think some people would probably say patriarchy mm -hmm. and they think that mm -hmm. although you're a black man you're still a man mm -hmm. and there's still benefits and privileges that you still do have and um, there's a way you know I'm just speaking in generalities mm -hmm. that it's a hierarchy like the world should operate in a way that sees fit for me yeah. as a man. Like, although I am a black man, I'm still a man. Like, this is how things should kind of like operate. And unfortunately with that situation with Meg Thee Stallion, it was just, it was actually another representation in terms of how black women are unprotected, how their opinions are devalued, how their experiences are devalued. And I just think that at the end of the day, I don't know, you can, on, on such a, a public level, you know, I think society um, and the culture failed that woman. So, and, and Tory Lanez hasn't said anything since the incident happened. Which he is, liked a post, a shade room post. What did the post say? Um, I can't remember who it was, but he basically was on that ish. <laughs> Talking about like, what did she do? What was it mm -hmm. that she did to is cause that's what him he's to saying shoot her? It? Yeah, so, essentially. So, so he's saying like the whole story hasn't come out yet. Is what he's saying. But there's nothing to. that anybody can do to warrant being shot in the foot. It's like, very true. Twice? It's very true. <laughs> For what? Yeah. I don't care how much she was yelling. It, like at some point, I watched a video um, of someone reacting to you know Meg's live, and he, as a black man, was like, "I don't care what's happening." Like. Like you take your time, you take yourself out of the situation, you walk away before you ever put your hands on somebody or even like think to shoot somebody. So no, I agree with that. I agree with that. And and, and that, that's not to say like, yeah. I, like your first initial reaction should never be to pull a trigger never. on anybody. Mm -mm. On anybody. That should never be your first initial reaction. But I've never been in that situation. I hope that I don't mm -hmm. ever have to be. Yeah in a situation like that and everything is easier said in hindsight you know obviously like i don't know what happened i don't know the full details in the story but i just think at the end of the day if someone is telling you this is what happened this is their experience i think automatically you should provide them the benefit of the doubt and you kind of move forward after that you know if somebody deceived you he was a Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's the perspective that people need to have in all honesty. So with that being said, I think that black men, just people in general, could do a better job upholding black women in, um, every, in every facet of life. So that being said, that essentially it's almost a wrap for this podcast. Also, one more thing. 
MJ, aren't you, um, you're doing lashes now, right? Do you <laughs> I, want to provide your lash? I am you want to plug your lashes. lash uh, business and contact information <laughs> how people can get their lashes, you I know, taken care started. of? You can follow me at Pristine Way of Life on Instagram to see my work. I'm How do you spell pristine? You know, sometimes on IG people spell things <laughs> a little differently. Like you would typically spell it if looking at the dictionary. P-R-I-S-T-I-N-E. Okay. -I, -I, I gotcha. All right, well, you know, that's a wrap. Like I said, follow me on Instagram at slate underscore one. Also, going to be changing the cover art of the podcast pretty soon. So you're gonna be seeing that, those new visuals. And also, you know, I got these beats hey. that I'm starting to, you know, create and make and sell. So check out my SoundCloud, it's <laughs> Dairy Boy One. I wanna change the name, I just haven't, I just haven't, um, well, I haven't trademarked the name of my LLC yet. Once I trademark that bad boy, then you're gonna be sin, you're gonna be, it's gonna be flooded, but, that being said, that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all. Stay safe. God bless you all if you do believe in God. If not, still stay, stay safe during this pandemic and wear a mask. One love.